0: Hi, this is Mimi, and welcome to my podcast, The Lovely Becoming. Today's guest is Nate Postalwaite, who's an amazing writer and advocate, and I'm so excited to have you on. Hi, Nate.
1: Hey, Mimi. It's so good to be here.
0: Thank you so much. So tell us about yourself. What do you do? What do you love?
1: What do I do? I write a lot. Um, I'm a certified uh, wellness coach, Um, but my primary goal is, is writing, to change conversations around Trauma in her child work. What do I like? Uh, the outdoors. I live in Denver. I'm in the mountains as much as possible. I love skiing. I love hiking. Uh, hike weekly. I'm outside for at least a couple hours every day, just on my feet. Um, love, love, love outdoor life and reading. Reading is a huge part of my life.
0: Ooh, what are you reading right now?
1: The Midnight Library. I just started um, post traumatic slave syndrome, which is so dense that it's like a few pages at a time it's so powerful and so impactful um i read about five or six books at a time mom it's all right there um girl with the pearl earring body keeps the score <laughs> and zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance i i have a bad habit of like saying oh but what about this one so there it's not uncommon for me to be reading like 12 books at a time but i have to really zone in and like pull back and just go one at a time
0: I relate. I have a bookshelf full and people are like, have you read that? And I'm like, I've read like a couple chapters and I'm currently reading another book and another one. So (laughs) right. Amazing. Um, So tell me about inner child work. Um, What is it and how does one do it?
1: Inner child work is something that I struggled with the most when I was deep into trauma therapy. It was just a concept I couldn't grasp and didn't have a whole lot of interest in. And then went through my own process of being burned out. At this point, I had been in therapy for, gosh, 15, 16 years, and just felt like I wasn't getting the response that I needed. I went through this just really heavy period. And I gathered my own thoughts and everything that I had been taught about the inner child and and who they are and what that means, and just developed my own process of, in my apartment six years ago, I lined up the photos that I had of myself from four all the way to 33, and I surrounded all of those photos with every poem that meant something to me, every passage from a book that meant something to me. And for a month, I shut the curtains of my home, lit candles, and I would put my hand on one of those passages, one of those quotes, one of those poems, and then look at the face of that picture and then apply that message to that version of myself. And I did that every day for a month and only had two friends who ever saw the whole process. I actually took pictures of it and and look at those pictures often, but that really helped me recognize and understand when I'm looking at these pictures of this younger version of myself, I have held him in contempt for making me feel a certain way now when all he wants is relief. The, the, The inner child is this subconscious version of us who's got recorded memories as all subconscious parts of us do, but based on their experience and based on their understanding and the whole crux of inner child work is just offering that version of them relief. It's being able to say to them, they don't even know that the trauma that they live in, the pain that they live in ever ends. They're hypervigilant and they're in survival mode and they're constantly trying to protect us from anything that feels like a trigger to them. And it's really learning to establish a relationship with this part of us that, that we, tend to block out and think that if we can make it go away, we'll feel better, not recognizing that makes them feel that much more dismissed or that much more amped up. They're not gonna cooperate with that because they're in survival mode. So inner child workers really understanding that subconscious thought pattern and embracing these experiences that we've had and recognizing the innocence, the hardship at that time, looking through the lens of a child And then giving them some relief and being the person that says, you know what, I want you in my world, but I'm going to make the decision so you don't feel like you have to.
0: It sounds like it's really tangible work and also abstract at the same time, you know, kind of speaking lovingly to that previous version of ourselves and and giving that relief is really important.
1: Yeah, I think that what I've done that has helped me the most is I named the age of myself so that I can say seven year old Nate, and that helps me be mindful that how did he process that at seven? I can't give him my input at 43 when he's in survival mode and he's just saying this hurt and all I've known is to respond to this process for this many years. You can't just enter in and tell me that this is how things are going to be now. It's really a process of understanding like that was a very significant thing that marked me and had an impact on me that's going to take some time to get to know that part of myself and be able to say, ah, it's over. It's over. You can rest. And it's unbelievable in embracing those parts and offering relief to those parts of ourselves, the way that that integration happens. And then you start to feel way more present and engaged and not feeling like you're as triggered as before, and then as time goes on, you begin this practice of recognizing what's getting hit right now? What part of me is getting hit? And you go directly to that instead of detaching from that and saying, I can't process this, I can't deal with this.
0: Yeah, something you said that really stuck out to me and kind of reminds me of the body keeps the score is this idea that we need to know that the trauma and the pain has ended because it keeps replaying over and over in our minds and our bodies keep thinking like it hasn't ended even if we consciously know that. So that's really interesting.
1: And again, to imagine the age that it happened. So, you know, no seven-year-old looks and says, well, this was rough, but my nervous system is hijacked. However, if I just bring myself out of fight, flight, freeze, fawn and regulate my nerve, like, no, that's just not how that works for a kid. So that kid becomes a teenager, that teenager becomes adult. And all of those experiences are stored inside of us until we find a way to offer some sort of relief. And inner child work has by far been the key for me in, in in those processes.
0: Definitely, I've, it's important to make it developmentally like appropriate and like to understand that even if we did have that understanding that we have now, it might not have been helpful because of the way that it was told to us and taught to us and the way it's stored in our bodies for sure. Right. Um, what was the process of coming out like for you? A totally different question.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think that coming out is powerful. It's uh, it's very freeing. Coming out for me had very little to do with sexuality. For me, it was more of grieving, and realizing I had fought this the wrong battle for far too long. And um, you know, I know that it's it's unbelievable how different the conversations are now, where there are so many more affirming families. I grew up in in a family and an environment where being gay was the most detestable possible scenario so i started hearing things when i was five and six years old and as a five and six year old i took those messages and knew that there was something different about me and when i think about that kid my heart breaks because he was also being abused inside the home outside the home and um there just wasn't a lot of room for a whole lot of anything other than conforming to survival coming out was powerful because i knew that i was going to experience a sense of self that i had never known before and that was amazing um but damn the grief i mean damn the grief of like looking and saying i can't get my teen years back my 20s back my 30s back i can't get any of those years where i've just been taught that i was such a horrific person because of this thing and i did all of these different types of christian therapy that did so much damage did so much damage um, and I was fully committed from a, a place of vulnerability and, and a lack of education um, on on what I was doing to my body and my mind by committing to this process to undo something that was actually quite natural and quite beautiful um, I'm really secure in my sexuality I um it, it just opens your eyes to things that you just didn't see that were there all along. Um, but I think I speak loudly about this process because of how many kids in small towns like me do not have one single resource. Not They do not have one accessible hand or voice in their family or nearby that's affirming them. That's a very real reality for a lot of people. So that's why I'm Pretty vocal about it,
0: mm-hmm. and what that does to your body—to constantly be told messages that you have to keep inside, um, and to be constantly told that you're not acceptable or okay—I um, imagine how much freedom there is, and at the same time, um, working in the society where it's still a marginalized thing, and it's still something where um, we don't talk about it enough. So,
1: yeah, and i you know—it's—it's it's fascinating how often um, people will send me direct messages, which I hate more than anything on this planet, getting private messages from people or leaving comments of, or or sending my assistant an email, an inquiry. I want this information, this, 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 this. And then they find out that I'm gay and they like will unfollow. They'll be very direct about, um, I didn't know that you were living in sin and like all of this stuff. And she's like, isn't it fascinating that I had some information about trauma and consciousness and being connected that you, you resonated with so strongly, but you finding out that I was gay created such an animosity in you to reject me at that point isn't that fascinating. Um, says way more about them than it does me, but it's still so painful to feel like there is an existence in other people that they'll, they'll take from me, they'll take the free work that I offer and the input about trauma and then discredit it all when they found out that I'm gay. It's really heartbreaking.
0: Yeah. And isn't it interesting how in religious circles, oftentimes we can't see someone's humanity and who they are and the good that they offer, because we're so stuck on this one thing that we view as bad and like, as almost like overarching and overriding other things, um, which is really interesting.
1: I, I mentioned this on a live recently, but it really stood out to me. I posted something several weeks ago about forgiveness. Um, I think forgiveness is really powerful. I think that the Christian culture has misused all of what forgiveness is. And I think it's wildly inappropriate how it's misplaced, especially in conversations around trauma. And the post said, I'm going to paraphrase, I don't ever plan on forgiving those who abused me when I was a kid. I was sexually abused from five to 14. And that young boy wants my protection and doesn't give a shit on whether or not I forgive their abusers. That's not even part of the narrative. I cannot tell you how many Christians left nasty remarks on that post. Um, And one person just said, I'm unfollowing, you're living in unforgiveness. And I just, I sat there and thought, that's your takeaway. You just read that someone was sexually abused from five to 14 and that was your takeaway. It's heartbreaking to think what that person must be living with to be so rigid, to have this internal dialogue that says, I need to, I need to project inappropriately and in a very toxic manner on someone who's confessing being sexually abused. And that's what I'm coming up with. That's just, that's just a level of, um, toxicity and it's it's really quite sad but I see it every day every single day
0: it is really crazy to think how we can put this one thing in our lives like before empathy before compassion before understanding and and you're right like forgiveness is not really on the table when you're thinking about protecting yourself from harm and when you're thinking about coming to terms with like the shame and the harm narratives that were done to you which is really important as well
1: Well, I think it's also scapegoating the survivor, like the survivor should have absolutely no obligation to explain their feelings towards someone who has caused them harm. Under no circumstances should a survivor be in a position where they feel obligated or any type of duty to have a specific emotional, physical reaction to someone who has traumatized them. That's absurd. Why are we even suggesting that, that Avenue. And the thing is forgiveness does not change the nervous system. Trauma does. And therefore let's address it from a trauma informed approach. I think that's the other piece is like stop talking about forgiveness as if it's this thing that's so powerful that it undoes trauma. It does not undo trauma that's marked in your nervous system. That's a very real experience for someone. And, and, and forgiveness to me, is private. It's a very private matter. Like what someone chooses to do with forgiveness is their business. Um, But I don't know of any research that says by forgiving, it reduces the impacts in your nervous system.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful to hear. And I think you're absolutely right. So thank you. Um, So speaking kind of, we've been talking about this a little bit. What role did religion play in your story and how has that shifted?
1: Fully committed as a kid, RAs on Wednesday nights, uh, Sunday school, Sunday morning, the adult service Sunday night. And um, that carried through, I think through the twenties, through my twenties, I was a missionary right after high school. Uh, And then always was involved with Christian counseling. Everything had kind of the Christian lens attached to it. And I think around my early thirties, when I hit my darkest moment with my mental health, where I had a, you know, legitimate breakdown where my brain went one direction, my body went the other. And Life as I knew it was no more. I started getting really serious about looking and saying, "Yeah, faith, whatever." But my body, like my physical body, is not going to survive this. Whatever this is that lives inside of me, I was sleeping two hours a night, having nightmares, um, uh, pretty severe CPTSD. I could not be in physical crowds. It was not I, like the the level of anxiety of going to the grocery store at two in the afternoon. Just sweating profusely, shaking. I could not do it, and so I would go for walks at two and three in the morning at the park nearest to my home, and go for drives by myself. And that was the only time I left my home for almost a year. And when I was introduced to trauma informed therapy, I went to an outpatient center um, at the end of that year, and all of a sudden started to experience relief from legitimate uh, trauma informed therapy that's when things started shifting. Um, once I came out, that was the biggest part. I think that this veil just came off of me where all of a sudden I started questioning everything I had ever heard and then was really angry at myself of thinking, why would you believe that? Why in the world would you have ever believed? And the list was so long. And the more I've explored things like energy, um, Gosh, holy shit, the last two years, it's been anti-racism work, which led to feminism, feminism that led to ableism, ableism that re- like led to like the problematic industries of um, how things about energy and quantum physics are relayed and how there's cult mentalities and so much of this belief. It's just like, it's opened up the door to everything. The more I've gotten educated on things that really resonate with me, the less religion has had any appeal at all. I I see that part of my life as something that was so trapped and stuck and um, so limited. Someone sent me a message the other day and she said, I'm not trying to offend you, but I'm not trying to self-promote when I say this, by the way, but I I just, it was fascinating. Like she, she said, you remind me so much of Jesus. And I said, well, let's be honest, you didn't know him, (laughs) And I think that your vision of him um, may be a little off because I think the reality is he would be repulsed by the way he's been made to be someone that wants people worshiping at his feet. Everything that I am aware of about this man named Jesus would just really be disgusted with the way that he's become this idol that suggests if you have the magic faith, by encountering him somehow then that means x y and z and none of it makes a damn bit of sense Um, especially for someone who's walked through trauma it's just it's really really confusing
0: i think we don't talk about trauma enough and and we don't have conversations especially with religion and don't know how to discuss it um i remember like i told someone that i don't go to church anymore and they were like why and i was like trauma and they were like oh and then they stopped responding and it was crazy because it's like we just don't know how to have these conversations um and so I'm grateful that you're here to start them and and it's important to what you said about um you can have a lot of faith and know what to do with that but what we don't know how to do with is the presence and we don't know how to deal with kind of what is going on in our bodies through trauma Um, so that's really important
1: I agree. Someone today made a comment to me, um, and and I did. I took quite a bit of offense to this. She said, "I'm so thankful you're using the wisdom that God has given you." And I just replied, and I said, um, "This wisdom is from 25 years of trauma therapy and tremendous sacrifice." That was really offensive to suggest that I have some sort of special anointing by a creator about this information that almost killed me. It's just it's just so baffling. And people project that so much, the need to constantly say uh, the religious piece being tied to it somehow. And um, I just, I felt really frustrated by that. And I just was like, uh, no, this was my work. <laughs> and um, this was a huge sacrifice for me to get to the place where I know and understand what I do about my mind and body.
0: Mm-hmm. It's like almost saying like it was worth it for that trauma and it was not worth it. Like trauma is not for a purpose and it's not like, you know, being used for something. It just is really bad. And I think it makes people uncomfortable to understand that like, there's not a transformative, like good thing that comes out of it. Yes. There's, you know, healing and post-traumatic growth, but also like, it's not, it's not worth it.
1: Yeah. There's so many, there's so many cliches too that are so unconscious and inappropriate. And I've broken a lot of those down on on social media a lot. Like uh, when I think about one of the posts that I I did is when people said, um, God will never give you more than you could handle. Do you understand the suicide rate? Do you understand the impacts of how many people could not handle what they've been handed and have severe complex PTSD? Other mental health diagnosis, because they could not handle, it's just so ignorant to say, God will never give you more than you can handle. Do you know how confusing and dismissive that is to the human mind and body, to the human experience who is already suffering so severely and more than anything needs to know that they matter and experience some sort of validation about how their body is responding to harm that was done to it? And instead it's, God will never give you more than you can handle. It just doesn't make sense.
0: And trauma is more than we can handle for our bodies. And that's why we maladaptively cope. And that's why we kind of like, and it's amazing that we're able to, but that's more than we can handle. Right. Um, so what is complex PTSD? Because it's not in the DSM is my understanding, um, but obviously there's more to life than the DSM.
1: There's so much that's not in the DSM-5. I mean, I, I was reading the other day and this is, I'm not a therapist. I always need to clarify. I don't know why I'm obsessed with trauma and I can read about it and um, talk about it. And people say, isn't that exhausting? I don't know why it's not for me. I love connecting with people in, in a space like this, but I'm always very, very clear with my clients on social media that I'm not a mental health professional, but I do read every damn thing can get my <laughs> hands on. Um, the DSM5, I think that there's just a lot of complexities about who's in control with that space. And when you think about the way that that's monitored to diagnose and name specifics, they are leaving so many demographics out of so many different people. So for me, it's like, listen, catch up. The world has speedily moved past you and you need to get this stuff labeled and named so that people have a better understanding. Complex PTSD, everybody I think when they think of PTSD, they think of war veterans. Um, PTSD is a very real uh, mind body experience where you just don't function the same way based on an experience. Complex PTSD is the sa- a version of that from the complexities of longevity and multiple experiences. PTSD is typically used To name and identify an experience complex just means you lived in an environment or had multiple uh, complex experiences that led to to PTSD. And it just means you've lived with it for quite some time.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think you're definitely right that like the DSM does not include a lot of people and it doesn't make space for a lot of developmental trauma, a lot of complexities of different conditions. And, um, but it's important, like the body keeps the score keep coming back to that, but you know, it talks a lot about adverse childhood experiences and things that we just don't name and we don't measure like operationally define. but that doesn't mean it's not just as real and valid and important.
1: I agree. The Body Keeps the Score is probably the most profound (laughs) textbook on trauma. Um, I've never finished it. I've had the book for years and it's just so powerful. And I read a lot. I read four or five books a month. I've never finished that book. And I I think part of me just gets so much from a chapter at a time that I don't want it to end. Yeah. Um, But I cannot recommend that book above all. Like it is, it's really profound.
0: Yeah. And and sometimes it's really helpful to take books in terms of like, take what you need from it at that moment, instead of just kind of like finishing just to finish, um, which is something I'm working on. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about childhood wounds. What are some common things that people are taught and grow up to harm
1: them That they caused what happened to them as a child that um, another child would not have been affected by what they're being affected by. that what happened to them was because they are not valuable, lovable, um, redeemable. I think that you you think about kids who grew up in environments where there's not the affirmation or validation, who they are in any level of survival mode is not gonna give them the ability to exhale and say, I am safe, I am wanted. So when you add any types of compounds of trauma, most kids are gonna turn that and say, what do I do with this information? What does this mean about me? And I don't think a whole lot of kids come to the conclusion where they think it means that my parents are wildly inappropriate and this is wrong. You know, I think a kid's in survival mode and they're dependent on other people to get all of their essential needs met and kids tend to default to believe I I created this or um, this shouldn't be hurting the the way that I thought. And I just don't think that we realize how long we carry those wounds. I think most adults at some point have a pretty strong awakening. It's a, a lot of times it's with addiction or a marriage falling apart or, Uh, someone close going through their own traumatic experience and that really wakes us up to say I think there's some more digging that I need to do you know for myself and that's when I think a lot of people start to recognize this trails all the way back all of these decisions that I've thought were because I was a horrible person or this relationship that ended up being toxic for me or I didn't recognize the red flags just tracing it all back and saying wow these patterns have been there for a long time and they stem from a very innocent, very um, angelic, precious kid who did not have the skills to process their environment.
0: Definitely. It's interesting to consider that our brains are developing so much as kids and those messages that we receive are so deeply ingrained and intertwined in our development. And so they really do stick with us for a long time. And the body really does, again, keep the score. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What's a cycle breaker?
1: A cycle breaker is someone who is able to acknowledge what has been handed to them and be willing to pay whatever price to stop that generational harm. It's, um, if you just think about, there's just this powerful movement of people that are putting that word on the map who are saying, this whole thing ends with me. I'm not going to do what was done to me. I'm going to do whatever it takes to uproot that experience. It's fascinating because we're seeing so much about, um, there's two books, there's, uh, I don't know, either author's names. One is It Didn't Begin With You That's about epigenetics. And then um, my grandmother's hands, Resma. uh, Do you know Resma's last name?
0: I don't, but I know what you're talking about. I'll link it in the show notes.
1: Both both are about epigenetics. And it's about the impacts of receiving DNA to generations above you that are impacted by their trauma. It's fascinating to read about that. Um, I think the power in that is being able to look and say, Yeah, in addition to epigenetics, we're conditioned to recreate the same environment that's familiar. And a cycle breaker is someone who says, I'm gonna pay whatever price to make sure that I don't perpetuate what's been handed to me that's harmed me.
0: Yeah. It sounds heavy, like a lot of introspective work, a lot of sacrifice on the part of that person um, because you're not really... Getting to enjoy, you know, young adulthood or things like that because you're doing the work. Um, but it's powerful. It's really powerful.
1: I, yeah, it is. It's definitely heavy, but I will say this just flipping that switch and having the curiosity to explore can offer so much relief because you recognize you've been out of alignment your whole life. So you're in this familial system. that that you're trying to make sense of and then recognizing I actually have a path out where it may not make sense to my siblings and it may not make sense to my aunt and uncle and my parents but this does not resonate and I don't want to carry this there's a lot of freedom in that too it is hard for sure but there's a ton of freedom of just like the expectations and pain of what you've always carried and been expected to carry and saying no
0: Yeah. A lot of release and a lot of relief, like you said, for sure in that work um, and in pivoting from what's been before. Yeah. Um, What words would you speak to your inner child that you'd like to share with us?
1: Oh, I get teary out immediately. Um, Precious boy, never, ever, ever does anybody get access to you without coming through me first. Um, You belong to me. Uh, I will never be quiet to you about how important you are. I'm so sorry. I did not know that you needed me all those years ago. Um, and I love the time we have together now.
0: Thank you for sharing that with us. Extraordinary. Um, on a lighter note, um, what are your favorite foods?
1: My favorite foods, um, So, everybody on social media knows that my life is centered around chocolate chip cookies. Like, when they ask if I'm in a relationship, I always say, Yeah, with chocolate chip cookies. Um, I can tell you every place in Denver, like, who who I can start talking about chocolate chip cookies, and people get a big kick out of it because I get excited. But if I feel like they're not listening, I get a little offended. Where I'm like, Who the hell are you? Like, you don't understand. No, no, no. Like, it literally just crumbles. Chocolate chip cookies. Um, My favorite meal is lobster, macaroni, and cheese. Like that is like heaven to me. Um, But yeah, I would say I've got to give a shout out to chocolate chip cookies because it really is like a relationship for me.
0: Lobster, mac, and cheese or like lobster and mac and cheese?
1: Lobster, mac, and cheese together. Amazing. Oh, it's so good. There's a, there's just a, the only reason I say that is because there's a market, that I, I walk everywhere. I'd hardly ever drive, but I walk everywhere in Denver. I live just outside of downtown and, um, there's a market that makes a two-person version of lobster mac and cheese. And I am both of those people. I love that. That lobster (laughs) mac and cheese is so good. Um, so yeah, I would say that's my favorite meal.
0: I love that. Now I kind of want that for dinner, so that's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and the question that I ask everybody, um, how are you becoming
1: Slowly. (laughs) Um, I think the the thing that the theme in my life right now is not knowing that I could have ever felt this good in my own skin. I could have never known that I could get to a place where being alone felt safe. And it was something that I craved. And it was the thing that calmed the other parts of me and um that is such a gift that is such a gift to know what it's like to just feel like you have to be busy 24 7 because you just do not have any tools to know how to settle down and not talk too much when you're around people or work 80 hours a week or whatever it is um but to actually make room where you feel whole alone it's pretty amazing yeah
0: That's amazing. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate you.
1: Honored. Honored. Thank you.